a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 74, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comics series, looking at the licensed Marvel sci-fi and fantasy with a cover date of March 1978, including Star Wars number 9, John Carter, Warlord of Mars number 10, Godzilla King of the Monsters number 8, Human Fly number 7, and The Man from Atlantis number 2. Hello, everybody. This is Ben, Ben Avery, and I'm here because I have just gone on a journey through time. I have gone back in time to a spinner rack in 1977 to buy some comics that are cover dated of March 1978. The release dates of the comics we're looking at for this next series of segments is from actually December. And so some of these might have actually ended up being Christmas gifts. Uh, although not John Carter, Warlord of Mars, that came out two days after Christmas. But uh, here's what we're doing. We are walking through Marvel's licensed science fiction comics. We're using Star Wars as our anchor. We'll always start with Star Wars whenever we start a new month, a new cover date month. And this month, there's only five books, really. So here's how we do this. I have a box. Uh, actually, I used to pull these out of a short, long box. And I know, I know. It's not a short, long box. I guess it's just a short box or something. Uh, for some reason, that's just the word that's stuck in my head when I talk about the shorter version of the comic book long box. A short, long box. Uh, but I don't have that. Well, I, I still have them. There's there's two short, long boxes that have my, my collection here that we're reading from. But I've actually moved over and I, I have put... I have a, a wooden... Star Wars box that has actually artwork from Star Wars comics. Got it at a craft store. Uh, I actually got it uh, because of a heads up that I got from Shag Matthews, the Irredeemable Shag from the Firewater podcast. And that has the comics that I'm wanting to read in the near future. So there's some Secret Wars 2 comics in there for that event series that we're doing for a comic book time machine. There's uh, my Godzilla Omnibus, because that goes along with, with this series. There's my Star Wars Omnibus Volume 1 that I'm reading from right now for this series. There are about 10 bags from this series that I have assembled. And then there's some other random series in there that, um, you know, 20-issue run of a comic series from the 80s that I want to read in the near future, that kind of thing. And that way they're just all easily accessible to me, and they're in a kind of cool box, and I really... I'm very thankful to Shag, actually, for, for posting a picture of this uh, thing that he got. So anyway, in that box, along with the Godzilla Omnibus and the Star Wars Omnibus, there are, like I said, these poly bags. And inside the poly bags are comics that I have put in month by month and with according to the cover date. And inside, along with those issues, are, is a slip of paper. And on that slip of paper is everything that I need to read to do the March 19, well, in this case, the March 1978 cover date. And so what I do, I pull out the bag 
and I don't know what's coming up. I, I mean, I assembled these bags, but it's been so long now since I've assembled this. I don't remember when things are coming. I know that things are coming. I forget maybe that I might have put in, well, for example, Human Fly. I think I forgot that that was coming. And so that was a nice little surprise. Uh, same with Man from Atlantis. I didn't realize it was coming as soon as it did. You know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, First Men in the Moon, when, when that hit, I was like, oh, great. A little, you know, one-off little thing. And so as we get further in, it's going to be even more like that, where all of a sudden a series will pop up, maybe even that I completely forgot about. But on the slip of paper, it says what the, the titles of the books are, the issues, and this way, you know, whatever's in the bag is on the slip, but then I also know which issue to turn to in the Godzilla omnibus, the Star Wars omnibus, or if I need to skip, you know, maybe maybe Godzilla didn't publish anything that month, and so it wouldn't be on this slip of paper. And so I have done that. I have pulled out the bag for the cover date, March 1978. The release date for all of these is December, like I said, 1977. And there's only five. And I was a little surprised, actually, and even a little bit disappointed that there wasn't any kind of, you know, weird one off like Crazy Magazine or, uh, you know, First Men in the Moon. You know, even though even when I don't like something, I enjoy discovering that thing. You know, it's it's kind of I don't know. There's just something about it that go, goes back to the the uh, the blind bags uh, that I've done for the Comic Book Time Machine's main feed. Uh, it just I guess I like the new and the surprise. And and maybe that's just something I need to look at myself and, and learn from this discovery. What does it mean that I have this quirk of personality and how can I adjust to be a better person now that I understand this about myself? But in the meantime, I'm going to read some comics because that's what this is for. So here are the five March 1978 Marvel licensed books that Marvel put out, not including Conan or, or Tarzan, because I you know, long ago explained why I wasn't going to be touching them. Uh, here's here's what they, what they are in order of release date, not necessarily in order of coverage. I'm not that with anal retentive, I guess, where I'm going to go in release date. And, uh, you know, I, I'm going to always start with Star Wars. And most of the time I'm going to end with John Carter because I know I'm going to start with something that I mean, Star Wars is the reason I'm even doing this. And John Carter, man, so far has just been incredible. And I hope it just keeps up that that level of quality. Uh, but in the order of release that it actually came out, here are the five books I'll be covering in the next few segments of this podcast. First, December 6, 1977, Human Fly number seven hit the stands. Human, uh, not Human Fly, Human Fly number seven hit the stands and Godzilla number eight hit the stands. And just a little teaser for Human Fly, that cover, if it delivers, I will be happy. Now, they haven't delivered. You know, they promised me human fly fighting sharks. And I kind of got it, but not the way I really wanted it. Come on. But this one has human fly fighting a giant grizzly bear. Yes, human fly has to fight the bear. And I could not be more excited because I'm really trying not to be more excited because human fly has not really uh, lived up to this the standard of of uh, of enjoyment for me. I mean, there's standards of quality and there's standards of fun. And you know, there's so bad it's good and then there's so bad that it's just bad and then there's just mediocre. 
And, you know, so far, Human Fly, it's flirted with being so bad it's bad. But this one, there might be some... I'm not going to get my hopes up. I am not an optimist. And so I don't know why I'm actually saying, eh, it might be good this time. Because I'm judging a book by its cover, I guess. Again, a personality quirk I need to learn from. I do judge books by their cover. And I am frequently disappointed. There's something there. Then on uh, December uh, 13th of 1977, Star Wars number nine came out. And that's continuing that brand new storyline that uh, Roy Thomas created uh, with George Lucas's approval. Although we'll find out, well, we'll find out in coming months um, <laughs> that George Lucas didn't necessarily remain approving of this storyline. Uh, December 20th, 1977, we have Man from Atlantis number two. And then December 27th, 1977, we have John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 10. And so these are the five issues that we'll be covering in the next few segments from this podcast. And I think the order I'm going to take things in will be kind of really to soften the blow for me. I'm going to start with Star Wars, which I always do. But then I think from Star Wars, we'll go into Man from Atlantis, just because I don't know what to expect from that from man from Atlantis will go to human fly. And then that will give me some, you know, Godzilla and John Carter, you know, if human fly isn't great, which let's face it, hasn't been, um, then I'll have, I'll be able to wash, uh, you know, rinse the mouth out, so to speak with little Godzilla and John Carter and always trying then to end on a high note. So I'm going to go ahead right now and, get started with uh, my analysis and impressions and feelings and all that about Star Wars issue number nine. I'm going to call this first segment of the March 1978 cover date coverage uh, rising above. And that's because uh, I was hoping that they would be able to rise above just a transplant of Star Wars characters and sci-fi characters and, and sci-fi tropes onto Seven Samurai, onto Magnificent Seven. I mean, this is really, uh, you know, Star Wars itself does have a lot of influences in samurai movies. Hidden Fortress is a big influence behind the original Star Wars movie. And I think Roy Thomas even has said that because of that, he then was looking at, okay, well, what about Seven Samurai or Magnificent Seven, which would have been uh, more recent and also more American. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the Magnificent Seven story is a story that is, to be quite honest, it's, it's, you, you've seen it. You've seen it. And maybe you didn't even know you've seen it, but when you're looking for it, you start to recognize it. And and here it's it's very, very evident, very, very evident. Basically, you have a powerful bad guy who is threatening and taking regularly from a weak uh, victim. That weak victim, village of people, sends someone out to go and bring back heroes, to bring back warriors who can stand up for them. And defend them, and they end up finding a motley crew of about seven people to come and to help them to fend off 
the bad guys. And, you know, that's the Magnificent Seven, which is one of the best examples out there. That's, you know, Seven Samurai, which, you know, was the movie that Magnificent Seven, Magnificent Seven was a Western, and it took its influence from the Samurai movie, Seven Samurai. So Roy Thomas says, well, if, if George could do it with uh, Hidden Fortress, I can do it with Seven Samurai, or more specifically, <laughs> uh, The Magnificent Seven. Because, I mean, he does take these last few issues, he's had just beat for beat things from Seven, uh, The Magnificent Seven. So my question was, well, can this rise above that and not just be an utter ripoff and become its own thing? And that's why, you know, rise above, there's a double meaning as far as rising. Uh, when we get to the end of this, we'll find out if that double meaning includes, you know, actual success in rising above. But uh, issue number nine was called Showdown on a Wasteland World. Howard Chaikin is still uh, being listed as an illustrator. You have Tom Palmer as well, though, who is listed as the illustrator. Uh, you have Roy Thomas as writer-editor. You have Tom Palmer as the colorist, John Costanza as the letterer, Archer Goodwin as the consulting editor. And then it says, I mean, it continues on the cover. It says, at last, beyond the movie, beyond the galaxy. And then inside, Star Wars, the greatest space fantasy of all, continuing the saga begun in the film by George Lucas, released by 20th Century Fox. The story in question is actually entitled Showdown on a Wasteland World. And the cover shows us Han Solo and... Chewbacca and Jackson the Rabbit, and they're shooting at uh, Raiders who are coming down. Cloud Riders. It says, "Keep firing, Chewie! All of you! It's, it's do or die! Because here come the Cloud Riders!" And uh, Jackson the Rabbit says, "Yeah, and it looks like it's gonna be die." <laughs> Ever the optimist. The story itself, uh, you know, it, it's brisk. It's short. I mean, we're talking about 1970s era stories. I mean, the cover price here is only 35 cents, but we're only getting, um, I think, 16 pages of story, maybe 17 pages of story. And you have uh, Han Solo and his band of people. I'm going to go ahead and, and read the descriptions. Um, the guys I signed up, I signed on to help us. I must have been chewing loon weed. <laughs> Don Juan Quixote, crazy old coot. He thinks he's the last of the Jedi Knights. Jackson, a six-foot rabbit who gnaws on ham bones instead of carrots. Hedgie, one of the few remaining spiners. Well, he throws a mean quill, at least. And Amaza, well, I've seen her shoot the antenna off a giant, spelled J-I-A-N-T, at 600 yards. Don't know what possessed me to bring Jim, who wants me to call him the Starkiller Kid, unless it's because he's a native. Besides, his robot, Effie, might be useful to us. So that's uh, our six helpers. And, you know, then we have Han Solo and Chewie. And they're all riding into town on Banthas. Uh, you know, kind of keeping that Western motif, I guess. Although it's just a little weird, you know, to see them riding on these huge hairy beasts. But it's actually, there's a, there's a cool element. And then you have our first battle scene, which is uh, not against the Raiders. The villagers have asked for help against the the raiders who are coming and stealing their crops and their young women. Uh, but when they ride up to the village and they see the crops, they see these monsters 
that have kind of human faces with bug eyes and beaks for noses and kind of a mane of feathers. And, and then they have wings and, and talons and everything like that. They're kind of like almost harpies, but maybe a male version of the harpy. And these things are attacking the crops and they're fighting them off. And Don Juan, he gets out his lightsaber and uses that. And Effie, the robot, fights off uh, some of these these guys. And you get a you get to see all of them at work. Um, Amaza, you know, she's she's a she's got two pistols and she's shooting and Jackson's got two and, and they're all doing pretty good. They're working well, if not as a team, they're definitely working well. But then, of course, we have the love interest. As Han Solo watches, there's a woman running out of the crops who's scantily clad. And she's about to get taken by one of these beasts. And Han Solo rides into the rescue on his bantha. I mean, these banthas, you know, just to picture them, they put costumes on an elephant's body. And, you know, so it has that big bulky body and then they have these ginormous mouths uh they're very very scruffy and so you can't really see their eyes and they have these gigantic uh horns like a a goat's horn or you know a ram's horn rather and it's just kind of goofy but at the same time i don't know i kind of like it so they're they chase off those creatures the creatures fly away and Han Solo has a moment with the girl only to find out that the girl is actually the daughter of the guy who who's kind of the, the spokesperson for the village. And she's also the granddaughter of a crazy old coot who he says, we don't need your help because I saw something. I saw something in the mountain years ago and I'm going to I'm going to get it. And that's that's a little foreshadowing. But um to keep with uh, Han Solo and them, the Raiders do come and we, now we jump right into another battle. They try to get the village ready, but the Raiders, including uh Sergi X is, is the guy, uh, the leader of the Raiders and it's not looking good. In fact, um, a couple of them fall, a couple of them are destroyed. Well, one is destroyed. The, the robot Effie, uh, Don Juan Quixote, gets uh, blasted in the back after doing a a nice Jedi move. He may not have the force, but he definitely knows how to use his lightsaber. But he gets shot in the back, and the battle is not going well until... And full spoilers. Full spoilers. I mean, this is an old, old comic, and if you're planning to read it, uh, if you're going to read it in the omnibus, it's going to get spoiled for you anyway because of the way the page turns come out. But truthfully, you know, if you, if you have any plans to read it, read it now and then continue listening to the coverage here. Uh, but because that old man, he is actually <laughs> like while they're fighting, he's just out there chanting with his arms raised and everything like that. And the battle's not looking good, but then they find out what the old man is doing. And that final page is a splash page of this giant lizard monster just bursting up from the earth, just erupting from the sides of the the cliffs, the mountains there. And suddenly the battle is a different battle. And yes, the monster rises from the earth. And as he does, he also brings up with it 
frankly, it brings up with it an uh, element of storytelling that I'm kind of excited about. This is not just going to be a Seven Samurai ripoff. This is going to give us something, you know, a little different. There's at least a twist to it. Now, it's still, yes, it is still going to be a ripoff of the Seven Samurai, but it's a nice twist. Now, we also find out that Luke is out looking for a new place for a new rebel base. They've lost communication with Luke. And so Princess Leia is going to uh, rush out and try and find him because he was just checking in to say that he might have found a good place for the base. And then he sees something and communications get cut off. And so she's coming after him. So there's that subplot there. But the main plot here is the Han Solo adventure. And and as he's um, I mean, it just I'm, I'm excited. You know, this is the kind of thing that, you know, it's that I guess that little inner inner child uh who loves godzilla you know and to see the the monster rise from the earth and and then han solo is going to have to take care of this with his pals now i don't know what's going to happen with don juan quixote i don't know if he's going to survive uh jackson the the rabbit i think is going to and um i have a feeling that our farm boy who reminds han solo of luke is also going to be you know one of the survivors of this story but I, I do wonder how many of these characters we're going to come back to later on. So I'm just trying to figure out if I even want to see them again. And and honestly, of them, Don Juan Guillote is the one who kind of interests me the most. Just this deluded guy who thinks he's a Jedi when there are no more Jedi. I mean, they've been destroyed. It clearly was told to us in the first movie. They're gone. And, except for Obi-Wan Kenobi. So. I, I would like to know more of his story. I don't know if I'll be able to get more of his story. Uh, Hedgie, the porcupine guy with a cape, I'm not interested in him at all. Amaza, I am a little bit interested in. She and Han Solo seem to have some sort of history. She's got some good one-liners, and it's kind of fun. Tim, don't care about, but maybe if I was a kid, I would care more about him. But anyway, the story itself is decent. There is some questionable storytelling and i think a lot of that comes down to some of the trouble they were having with howard chaykin i am not sure what the working relationship was here for this particular issue i do know howard chaykin is not going to be much longer on the series i know his name will not be on here much longer uh and i know roy thomas will not be around much longer when i get to the issue where he disappears from the credits i'm going to pull out one of those interviews that I have read uh, from him where he does talk about being let go from the series. And I'm pretty sure this story arc is the story arc that he was let go because of. Um, so here there's, there's some moments where we're told things that we should be shown. And there's some moments where it's just kind of awkward where they tell us something that they should be showing us, but then what they are showing us doesn't really match what they're telling us. And, it, it's not the greatest as far as especially this twist at the end where you find out what the old man is doing. You don't even know that the old man is doing something until you get to the second to last page. And so that's where, you know, it's not if I was going to give this a grade, you know, how many stars out of out of five, I would probably give this, uh, you know, three and a half or something like that. It's it's good enough, but it's not great. Yeah, but I am enjoying it. And now I want to know what's going to happen next. I want to know what's going to happen because honestly, to me, the best way you can up the ante in a battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil 
is not just to have the battle, you know, and not just to have one side it starts to lose and then they try harder. And so the other side starts to lose and then they try harder, you know, the, the wrestling type of, of thing or the Godzilla type of thing where Godzilla is losing and then he just decides, oh, I'm going to try harder now and I'm going to win. Uh, try harder is great and it's a great message for the youth of today, you know, but honestly, you know, what makes a conflict interesting is when you introduce a new element. And so with, you know, the all the trench battle from the first Star Wars movie where they're battling over the Death Star and what's the the element that comes in that that's kind of a surprising element well it's it's Millennium Falcon they win the battle because the Millennium Falcon returns with Han Solo and Chewbacca and they're able to get Darth Vader off of Luke's tail so Luke can take care of the business that needs to be done and and from that point on it's all just kind of you know it's that final roller coaster hill you know it's okay we're almost there and so for this, where you have the battle between Sergi X's Raiders and Han Solo's, uh, you know, band of, you know, ragtag band of warriors and the villagers. Now you add in this new element of this creature that has been summoned by one of the villagers. And <laughs> I just think, OK, this is the way this is the way to do it. And, you know, for me as a writer, uh, a comic book writer looking at this, I've made some of those show don't tell mistakes where you know i'll i'll have something and it'll come back and oh well we need to make sure we put in some dialogue or something there to make sure people know exactly what's going on there the art itself should sell the story and tell the story and in this it doesn't but they added in dialogue saying hey look at the old man over there that we can't even see we don't even know he's there until they say hey look at him over there but then uh, i'm also looking at this and thinking okay yeah this is really a, a pretty good way to take what could be just a cliched battle a rote battle between one side and another and you throw in a third party and it's not just a third party it's a third party that you don't know what it's going to do and is there gonna be any reasoning with this thing doubtful you know i mean it's just it's a force of nature now and that to me makes me say, okay, yes, the first story that they did way back in issue number seven, where they, you know, even had the the spacer that needed to be buried, and, and Han and Chewie helped the 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 alien guy to get the the spacer to the to the graveyard to to bury him. That's ripped right out of Magnificent Seven, and it's pretty. It's almost too close. You know, it's not an homage anymore. That's a, that's a ripoff. But here we're breaking away from it. So you're taking this inspiration, but then breaking away from it, not just because, oh, it's different because it's in space. No, it's different because now it's different. We're going to take the trope and we're going to turn it a little bit so you can maybe we're not turning it on its head completely, but we're turning it a little bit to make it a little bit more interesting. And yeah, uh, I mean, I don't have much more to say about this other than to say I I'm ready to read issue number 10. Ray Thomas, you have my attention. I like what you're doing. I know you're not going to last much longer, but so far, so good. And, you know, finally, we are beyond the movie, and I'm glad to go there with this. One of the first, one of, if not the, I can't remember timing-wise how this falls with Splinter of the Mind's Eye, the novel 
that was written by Alan Dean Foster, who also did the novelization of that that first movie, and who's doing the novelization of the uh, the Force Awakens as well. They brought him brought him back for that, and I, I don't know how the timing works with those two things, but you know, between Splinter of the Mind's Eye and this story, those are the first, you know, from two different mediums, the first expansion of the universe. And so, yes, the first expansion of the universe on comic stands that kids are picking up is we went from the Death Star to the medal ceremony to Han Solo hanging out with a six-foot rabbit. Sorry, a green six-foot rabbit. But that's all for this segment about Star Wars. And I, again, want to thank you for listening. And this feed can be found on the comicbooktimemachine.com website, where you will also find the main feed, where we talk about lots and lots of other comics. And until next time, thanks for listening, and Godspeed. So I'm holding Man from Atlantis, issue number two, in my hand right now. And I am looking at the cover. And the cover tells me all new from the sensational NBC television super series, Man from Atlantis. And then it says, Mark once more challenges the might of Mr. Schubert. The Bermuda Triangle Trap. And the cover actually has a good design. Um, you have the man from Atlantis who's wearing his Speedo. And he is bursting up through the bottom of, you, I would assume, some sort of base or some sort of ship. Just from looking at the cover, you don't know. Although when you finally get inside the book, you, you'll find out pretty easily. But uh, he's bursting up through a hole in the floor that there's water. And so this is obviously setting in the water or it is on the water. But he's bursting up. Water is splashing from him. And you can see one of his hands, his fingers are splayed. So you can see that he has webbed fingers. Meanwhile, there is a woman bound on her knees in front of a man who is wearing a, you know, a sailor suit. He's wearing that, what do you call that, uh, kind of coat. Uh, I think it's called a, a pea coat or a, a pea jacket, but uh, it's a sailor thing, you know, and he's pointing at Mark. And then you have behind him three or four, no, four men with, with guns who are pointing their guns at Mark. All eyes are on Mark in the foreground uh, between us and the action. There are actually four more guys with uh, guns holding them. We can only see their hands and the guns themselves. But those guns, again, pointed at Mark. I, I like it because you have all these things. The only thing not pointing at Mark or the only person I should say not pointing at Mark is um, the doctor, uh, Dr. Elizabeth and that's because she is, you know, her hands are tied behind her back. And maybe if her hands weren't tied behind her back, she would be pointing at him. But probably if her hands weren't tied behind her back, she'd be trying to run away. So uh, maybe I'm wrong about that. But everything except for her is pointing at him. I like the composition, um, the water and the way it's dripping from his body as he's rising up from below. Not not the greatest uh, use of you know, water splash, but, uh, it looks kind of ridiculous. There's kind of, it's kind of like there's a waterfall, uh, he, he, like he's wearing a waterfall for a cape. Let's put it that way. And so it's not, that's, that's the one problem I'd have with this cover. If they would, have, you know, pulled back a little bit on the water, that might be a colorist problem rather than an art problem. 
I could see this as just artwork looking like it's meant to be just drips. But anyway, uh, it looks like an exciting cover. It looks like he is bursting into the scene of a, a James Bond uh, film. You know, it's like he's shown up. There's the Bond villain. There's the Bond girl. And there's all the Bond villains uh, lackeys. And he's like, wait, uh, you know, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and take care of things here for uh, Mr. Bond because he couldn't get here quick enough because I can breathe underwater and he's still outside, you know, trying to get in something like that. I mean, this this looks like it belongs to that kind of a story. And so the question is, well, is it that kind of a story? And the answer is yes, 100 uh, percent. In fact, some of this really feels like it was uh, stolen, ripped off from the I think the spy who loved me is the one because uh, we'll get into the story here. We find out that uh, they're calling in Mark Harris, who is the man from Atlantis. And it's a, a, an admiral from the Navy who is calling him in because they were doing some not so routine maneuvers. And they then had footage from some planes that were flying overhead where the ships are going along. This cloud of mist comes over the ships. And when the ships come out, every one of the ships are gone. And it just feels like a Bond plot, you know, where there's this mystery. What happened? Why did it happen? How did it happen? And they're asking for Mark to help them out. And Dr. Elizabeth uh, Merrill is her name. She is part of the team that's going to go and investigate and see what's going on. And there's some neat stuff here, though, where when they're going to investigate, they actually put a a skin diving suit on Mark Harris uh, because he's still top secret. Nobody knows about him or very few people know about him. He's top secret. And so the people that he's actually going to be diving with, they don't know his secret. Now, I think it would have been more interesting if they had kept him in the skin dive suit. Uh, and so that when he's swimming around, he's actually using his you know powers to be able to swim because uh, they even set it up where this is like an experimental suit where you could almost make it so that, yeah, it's the suit that lets him swim around like that. And instead, as soon as they get underwater, he's with those two other guys and he's he takes off the suit and he just starts swimming around and they're like, what? what's going on? And they're, oh, well, he's not quite human. So he's going to find out what's going on. And we find out that there's another mist cloud coming and it engulfs him, knocks him out, and he wakes up on another ship. And the ship belongs to Mr. Schubert. Now, I don't know who Mr. Schubert is. But we're supposed to know who Mr. Schubert is. And this is a problem, one problem with this comic series, for me anyway. I'm just not familiar with the character. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I last issue with Man from Atlantis, I was intrigued enough that I want to find this and and see it and watch it. I'm going to have to find it on eBay or something for cheaper than they're they're selling it for. Because for me to buy the series, you get four television movies, you get 13 episodes, and you're looking at 50 bucks there just to do what amounts to about 20 episodes of a show. I, I don't like that kind of a, a price for something like that. And so I'm, I'm waiting. I'm biding my time. Uh, in the meantime, Mr. Schubert apparently was in the pilot episode, the pilot movie for Man from Atlantis. And he's that first villain. And he does show up, I think, in some other episodes of the, the show. That's what they imply anyway, that he is a, a recurring villain on Man from Atlantis. but. You know, I mean, we don't we haven't seen him yet. You know, we didn't see him in that first issue. 
And so he doesn't get a proper introduction. I don't really know what he's about. You know, they kind of give a little bit in, of back and forth that kind of implies that. But I feel like I, I need more. If I'm just picking this up off the newsstand and they're using this as a comic book, it is basically a promotional item for the TV show. You'll buy the comic. You'll read the comic. You'll be interested. You'll want to see more. It, it works for me. I mean, over 30 years later, over 30 years, almost 30 years later, no, almost 40 years later, <laughs> you know, time travel is hard. Can we can we just establish that right now? OK, I just got back, you know, so anyway, it almost 40 years later, I'm reading the comic and I'm intrigued enough from last issue to want to read more. If this had been my first issue and I wasn't doing a series where I'm going to read all of them anyway, I don't know how intrigued I would have been because I just don't know anything about this character. Uh, now, it does end on a cliffhanger because what happens is when they they reveal who the villain is and then they put this thing on his wrist and he looks around and realizes all the sailors who are working on this ship for Mr. Schubert have these kind of mechanical bracelets on their wrist and it's causing them to be under mind control. Mark, the mind control doesn't work on him. And so he turns around and realizes that Dr. Elizabeth Merrill, she has also been captured. She is under mind control and nice little twist. I like it. I like it a lot. She's actually working for Mr. Schubert. In fact, not only is she working for Mr. Schubert, when Mark goes on the attack, she's the one who's brought in to deliver the knockout blow against him to stop him from stopping Mr. Schubert. She shoots Mark in the back with a, some kind of stun gun. And when he wakes up, we find out that he is strapped to a table because since he cannot be put under mind control, he's of no use to Mr. Schubert. No use at all, except for as a lab experiment. They're going to open them up. They're going to find out what makes them tick. And then they can use that to augment people in Mr. Schubert's grand new world. And what is Mr. Schubert's grand new world? Well, his grand new world, his brave new world, we might as well just go there. His brave new world is something he's going to create by causing lots and lots of natural disasters. It's going to kill people off and destroy crops and stuff like that. And then he is going to be in control of the world's cheapest food supply, plankton, under the sea. Something that we don't eat, but that we could. And so I find myself reading this. The cliffhanger is interesting enough. I do want to know what's going to happen next. I know he's not going to get you know, cut up and vivisected or dissected or whatever. I know that's not going to happen, but I am curious, you know, how is he going to get out of this? Is Elizabeth just going to, you know, shake away the, the mind control or who, who knows? But I, I'm reading this and part of me is just kind of, oh, it's, well, it's not the greatest. But then part of me starts looking at it and realizing I'm reading a nice uh, ripoff or pastiche of uh, James Bond film. Um, actually I'm, I'm not just being reminded of the spy who loved me where they have the boat that comes and swallows other boats and takes away the nuclear weapons or whatever. But I'm also reminded of on her majesty's secret service, the one with the, the one-off bond. Uh, I can't remember his name who played bond in that, that movie, but, um, where the villain is going to, you know, destroy crops 
And, you know, that's that's his plan. And, and I'm reminded of that kind of thing here where he's going to cause natural disasters. But then tied into the natural disaster thing, I'm reminded of uh, fears that would have been of the time, the late 70s of natural disasters of, you know, the early inklings of is the earth, you know, are we are we destroying the earth, you know, the environmentalism. Um, now he's going to kind of cause the already things that are already maybe happening, you know, with earthquakes and stuff like that. Well, he's going to turn around and he's going to make things worse. So the stuff that's happening naturally and maybe the stuff that's happening by human hands, well, he's going to stick his hand in and make it much, much worse. And then there's also this fear of food shortages and those kind of things where, you know, you have a, a drought and what do you do and what are you left with? And plankton was one of those possible solutions for a food shortage. It was something that could be harvested. It was something that wasn't being used. And it was just one of those possible solutions. And so I appreciate, I, I do appreciate the storytelling elements that are going into this. Uh, there's some creativity on one hand, but on the other hand, there's, you know, it just seems to be taking away elements from from other things. Now, I should say, you know, I'm appreciating the story. Well, who wrote the story? It's Bill Mantlo who wrote the story. And I I am a fan of Bill Mantlo. I love some of his work so, so much. Some of his work feels more, I don't know, workmanlike, maybe um, like like this, where you have this story that has these kind of energetic elements, but they're energetic elements that feel like they come from from somewhere else. It doesn't feel like he's phoning it in. But it also, like I said, I feel like I'm looking at a James Bond story that I've already seen, not just a James Bond style of story. I mean, right down to that maniacal villain of, of Schubert and his base and his, you know, some of it, though. I mean, let's just face it. A lot of those James Bond movie elements really are kind of comic book villain elements. The artist is Frank Robbins and Frank Springer is the anchor. Tom Wozniczowski is the letterer. Janice Cohen did the colors and then Archie Goodwin was the editor. And I guess the, my other problem that kind of causes me to be a little ambivalent about this issue, uh, you know, there, uh, there's parts that I like, there's parts that I don't, but the artwork, it just, there's some weird anatomy in here. And the way that, um, the, the way that Mark you know, his body moves and the way it looks as he as he's leaping and just the way the angle of his body, it almost feels like his body is angled not to do the physical motion that he needs to do, but so he can just fit in the panel, you know? Oh, okay. So he, uh, his head is here. His chest is here. Uh, he's close to the bottom of the panel. So I'm going to angle his legs this way. It just doesn't feel I don't know. If, I guess natural is probably the right word. Now, I will give the benefit of the doubt. It is quite possible that that is intentional in that he is trying to make Mark's, you know, action movements look like action that would be taken by someone whose muscles have been developed from swimming in the water. Uh, but there's just it, it just doesn't feel right. And I've seen this kind of thing in comics before. It doesn't feel like it's out of place in a comic. It just doesn't feel natural as I'm looking at him. Now, when he's swimming, uh, you know, when he's swimming, those those movements and the angles of his you know, limbs, 
well, I'm looking at a panel right now as I'm flipping through and, and it, it's not, <laughs> it feels this really awkward. Like I imagine, you know, if, if my body, if I stretched my legs that way, I'd pull a hamstring. It, it just, it just feels a little bit off. Some of the faces feel a little too cartoony. Uh, the eyes of the people who have had their, their, uh, minds, taken under control the eyes are not just pupilless which they are but they're exactly they're perfectly round i mean their eyes look like they you know when, when you're under mind control you suddenly become a richie rich character and so the, there's just things about this where i just don't feel like it's you know top of the game kind of comic it's it's middle of the road it's middle of the road it's serviceable does its job but then as I was thinking about things and I was thinking about, oh, it's based on a TV show, based on a TV show that actually could have been, easily could have been uh, either a Submariner or an Aquaman TV show with, with the, the setup of this man who is found on a beach who doesn't know anything about his past. Is he from Atlantis? Well, that's what they assume. Uh, he has a uh, different uh, physiology. He has you know eyes that can see almost in the dark. He has to wear sunglasses. When he goes up in the light, he has webbed feet or webbed fingers. And <clears throat> so as I'm, I'm looking at this setup and I'm thinking, you know, what if it was an Aquaman TV show? And, and if I'm looking at this comic, and if I just tweak my brain a little bit to the left and imagine that this comic book is not a comic book, but it's actually a TV show, but it's not man from Atlantis. It's 1978 Aquaman. If I imagine I'm watching Aquaman, the TV show, while I'm reading this this comic, I feel like I actually kind of like it more. I don't know. It's, maybe I'm, I don't know. It, it's just a, a mindset. It's, it's a frame of mind. But as I was reading this and thinking, oh, man, well, okay, whatever. If I was, uh, well, let me put it this way. I haven't seen Man from Atlantis. I haven't seen any of the episodes um, I want to, and maybe I eventually will, hopefully before I finish coverage of the comic. And I don't know how long the comic lasted, but I know it didn't last very long. The show did not last very long. It got four pilot movies or four, you know, made for TV movies. And then it got ordered to series, but it was only in production as a series for half a season. And that's why we've never seen it really. You know, when you only have 13 episodes, you don't get into syndication. You might get, you know, on sci-fi for a Saturday afternoon you know, for a couple months, but you know, 10 years ago, but you're, you're not getting into syndication and it's not going to do something like where bionic man or incredible Hulk, or I called it bionic man. I'm not going to edit that out. I'm just going to correct myself right now. The $6 million man and the bionic woman, all those shows, they had enough episodes to be put into syndication and kind of catch a, you know, a second audience, uh, even Battlestar Galactica, which only lasted for one season, but they paired it up with the two seasons of Buck Rogers. And so they made a syndication package out of that. This didn't get anything like that. And so it's, it, it's unknown. It's an unknown. And I'm exploring this. I'm realizing I would like it to not be an unknown. I'm happy to read the comics, but the comics themselves, um, you know, I, if I was buying these off the newsstand just to read, I, I'm not sure how long I would stick with it. The cliffhanger? Yeah, we'll find out what happens next issue. Uh, but there's not a lot of tension. 
it's just more of a, oh, I wonder how, and not a, oh, what's going to happen next? Because you know something like this, and this is one problem with licensed sci-fi and fantasy, well, licensed anything, is if it's based on something that's ongoing, if it's based on something that is not created by the company, it's got to keep the status quo. And really, the only thing you can change in a situation like that the only thing you can do to go beyond the status quo is to add characters who can have meaningful change. Uh, you know, John Carter issue, I think it was eight is an, is an example of that where they had a, a man and a woman who had a relationship and that relationship ended because she was killed by a plot that was put into motion by the bad guys. And that causes the man's story to progress. And now he has gone and he has killed someone, a woman, accidentally, but he did. And now he has to face the emotional fallout of that. And the only thing you can really do with, you know, an established character is the illusion of change. Because you don't know where the TV show is going to go. You don't know where the book series is going to go. Uh, you don't know where the stunt man is going to go. <laughs> Speaking of stunt man, uh, as I close out this segment, that's where we're going next. If you're listening right now, and this is the first episode that you've listened to of this Marvel stuff, uh, you don't know about my my history with the human fly, and you may not even be familiar with who the human fly is or what the human fly is. So I'm just going to briefly give you a quick overview of what it is we're actually looking at here. Uh, the human fly is a real-life stuntman, and he would do different stunts. The money always went to charity, and Marvel Comics connected with him to do a comic book about his exploits, his fictional exploits in the Marvel Universe. That reflected somewhat his real life exploits. For example, the first stunt in issue one where he was standing on top of a plane. That's also a stunt that he had really done in, in real life. For me, it was a little bit of excitement when I opened up the bag that had that month that featured the human fly issue number one. I was excited because it was something new, it was something strange, it was something beyond, you know, the typical science fiction pulp adventure type of stuff that I was covering for this project. And it was one of those little surprises, like I've said before, where sometimes I forget what I've put in or when they got put in. And so I didn't know, oh, human fly, it's coming up right now. And so I was excited. And since then, I have had my excitement get tempered a little bit. Uh, the human fly has not. Well, OK, I was going to say it's been some of the best and some of the worst, but it, it really hasn't been some of the best. Uh, it hasn't even come close to being some of the best of what I've been reading. It has absolutely been some of the worst of what I've been reading. And I believe it's human fly number two. That is quite possibly the worst thing I've read for not just for this series going through the Marvel sci-fi. It's quite possibly the worst thing that I've read for anything that has to do with comic book time machine. It's not the worst comic book I've ever read. That honor <laughs> goes to something else. <laughs> a couple other things, actually. 
definitely not the worst comic I've ever read. And maybe some of those, uh, you know, grab bag books that I've been, you know, getting from the store. Maybe some of those random books have, haven't been very great. But that issue number two, whew, and it never quite lived up to any possible expectations I might have for the series or might have had, I should say, for the series. But this month, this month was difficult because I, I don't know if I'm actually going to be swinging around on this. This issue, number seven of The Human Fly, uh, well, let's let's just get into it because I, I'm still trying to figure out how I really feel about this. Uh, the writer is still Bill Mantlow, who also wrote that um, Man from Atlantis story from this month. The artist is Lee Elias, the inker Mike Esposito, and it was lettered by someone with the last name of Pat Patterson. I'm sorry, I don't know the first name. And the colorist is Mary Titus. And the cover does promise something wild. Uh, it says, a rocket sled stunt becomes a battle for survival. And it shows the human fly leaping from a snow machine, leaping from the snowmobile that has that's blasting through the air with rocket jets. That's the first thing you see. It's red. And then you see what he's leaping toward, a giant bear. And underneath the bear, a child screaming in terror. Behind the child, an adult body laying on the ground with a crashed snowmobile next to him. And then there are the words, fury in the wild. So that's our cover. And like any cover, it promises a lot. It has to promise a lot because it wants to get you to plunk down your 35 cents. Hard earned cash. Cold, hard cash. And it's got to set itself apart from all the other stuff on that spinner rack that we went to in December of 1977 and honestly the cover does its job well it sells me on this and i'll be honest fighting bears is not something i ever want to do fighting bears is not something i'll ever encourage someone to do fighting bears is not something that i'd like to go and see at, happen at a carnival or something like that however the idea of fighting a bear is something that it just reaches in and touches that basic nature, that base nature, that that human nature that wants to triumph over nature, nature. Uh, you get what I mean? The idea, I mean, you've got this clawed beast with enormous strength and terrible jaws and having to fight and overcome this thing. It's it's like one of the few things in nature that could totally tear you apart, but you could also, as a human being, stand a chance against because of your wits. And I don't want to see bears get hurt. I don't want to see bears hurt other people. But the idea of fighting the bear? I mean, there's a reason this phrase, you must fight the bear, is stuck within my soul. And I really maybe have revealed a little too much about my inner soul. But 
the idea you you have to overcome this enormous thing that is in your way before you could do something. Uh, you have to fight the bear. Now, full disclosure, the phrase itself does not come from any kind of revelation I had in any kind of you know meditation or spiritual searching or anything like that. It actually comes from a Saturday Night Live skit that I've never seen. It comes from my friends quoting the Saturday Night Live sketch and saying, you must fight the bear. And me then kind of just latching on to that concept, that idea that, you know, I, I think it was it just in a, a suburban setting where it was a family and they were making people fight their bear or something. I don't know exactly what the situation was, but it made me just kind of use the phrase way too often whenever someone wants to do something and I want to, you know, give them kind of a funny answer. I don't say it out loud. It is said within my head. They say, hey, can I do this? Uh, Yes, but you must fight the bear. So enough talking about Saturday Night Live, although Saturday Night Live could easily have fit into this licensed sci-fi thing uh, with the Saturday Night Live issue of spider-man i'll have to look into that and see if it happened between 1977 and 1986 because that's that's licensing right there but no we're talking about the human fly and here's the thing i read it i mean obviously i read it because it'd be kind of silly for me to be sitting here talking about this thing and not having read it although i could see the case could be made for you know not putting myself through torture intentionally But I read this, and so help me, I think it worked. I think I liked it. You know, the setup is kind of silly, but it's heartfelt. Um, You have the the opening splash page is a scene from the middle of the book, as we've done often. The narration is not by any of our typical characters. It's actually done by the guest star. And that's the thing, like with Man from Atlantis, which actually was based on an hour long primetime adventure series about a guy who is helping fight evil and helping people, you know, in various situations. Uh, I know I don't know how the TV series worked. Um, I'm just saying that that actually was, you know, what we're talking about. This the human fly. This issue is exactly what I've been expecting, and it does so in quite possibly the best way of all seven issues so far where it takes the human fly it he's traveling you know he's doing a stunt somewhere else i mean it, the setup is is all there he's going to do a stunt someone gets in trouble he's got to help them and that's the setup for a perfect prime time traveling adventurer series like night rider like the incredible hulk like the a team like you know, any non, any number of those types of shows, that's what we have here. He goes, he's doing what he does. Something goes wrong with somebody in the, you know, the, the guest stars, and then he helps them. In this situation, he's going to do a stunt on a snowmobile, a snow machine. And the narrator is a man who works on snowmobiles for this resort for rich people. And he's complaining about how he have all these rich people and they come in and they enjoy themselves. And who's making sure they get to enjoy themselves and getting you know paid minimum wage? Him. 
And not only that, there was an accident recently and his wife died in the accident and his son was blinded in the accident and he can't afford to get his son an operation that could re restore his sight. Okay. Yes, clearly we're talking cliche here. I, I don't think you could get more cliche than this idea of if I just had this much money, I could get, you know, and we know exactly by the end of this comic, the human fly is going to be giving this guy money to help his son get his sight back. We know that. And yeah, there's a part of me that says, okay, whatever. But there's a part of me that is curious. You got this guy complaining. I mean, he's not a nice sounding person. He's not the kind of person you want to spend time with. He's the kind of person that you would listen to if he was your friend. You would listen to if that was part of your job to listen to people complain about that kind of thing. Like if you were a pastor or if you were a psychologist or even if you were a bartender, because apparently this guy has an alcohol problem. And it's even suggested that this you know, the, the snowmobile mis uh, accident that he was in. He may have been drinking before he went for this ride on this snowmobile, which is really irresponsible. They don't show him drinking, but it is mentioned in the captions that he was, you know, drowning his problems in, in his beer. But anyway, the setup is all there. You know where this is going. You know, there's going to be a bear involved now because of this cover There's going to be an accident. And so, you know, just by looking at the cover and reading that first page, you know, finding out about his son who's blind and that, you know, then you're, you're reading the setup and you know exactly what's going to happen. And again, this is one of those things where it's not the what. You know what the what is. It's not the why. You now know what the why is. The why is kind of interesting, but not not again, kind of cliche. It's the how. How are we going to get there? And part of what carries that is going to be our art by Lee Elias who is taking turns with Frank Robbins, uh, according to the fly papers, it says that the book has two regular artists. Frank Robbins and Lee Elias are now permanent pencilers. Uh, and since most of the stories are single issue tales, each artist can work on their respective plots with Bill strenuously seeing to it that there is a line of continuity holding the book together. So Frank did issues five, six, eight, and nine. Lee is working on seven, 10 and 11. They said, this is something new for Marvel, but then so is the entire concept of a book like The Human Fly. Lee Elias is going to be the person who makes or breaks this book, really. And, you know, Bill Mantlo, he's he's going to give us a story. It's a cliched story, and it feels right at home, right at home with a Knight Rider story. It feels right at home with any number of those kind of traveling helpful uh, hero TV shows. So it's, it's set. It's, it's nice. This is a Christmas story. It's, it's set at a uh, festival at a winter resort, a, a mountain resort, and people don't want uh, the human fly to do the stunt. And we, we still have a little bit of the stuff going on with um, Ms. White, uh, the, the reporter. And, and she has to, she's apologizing and this is nice you know with a tv show maybe in season two the the friendly foil would actually you know join the team and be a, a nice person with but they, they don't change really 
over time on a TV show like that. But in this case, we've had her have a change of heart. And not only does she have a change of heart, she actually has a moral dilemma in that if she doesn't continue doing what she wants to do, which is expose the human fly, she'll lose her job. And so she apologizes to him, but she wants to talk to him about this. Now, he doesn't have time to talk to her because he has to do his stunt. But this is something that it was kind of nice to see this little bit of change where this hardened reporter is choosing to, you know, choosing her, her human side. And so what happens is he goes and he's going to do his stunt. And our our narrator, um, he's he's upset because his son can't watch the stunt. And so knowing his son would hear the cheers, he, he decides to take his son off on the on the snowmobile and go out for a ride. Now, this is where he's been drinking. This is a real problem. And all of this is his fault, really. Uh, But it's quite possible he wasn't. We don't see it. For some reason, Bill Mantlow chose to keep that, uh, you know, put that into a a caption box about about it. But I don't know if if he's been drinking right now or if it's just that that's something that's been ongoing when he's off the job. They tie up the seeing eye dog, uh, whose name is is Frost, and they tie him up because he can't come on the snow machine and he can't keep up with it. And so he's going to be there at the the garage. And so now we have our setup. The snowmobile with uh, Andy, who's the, the name of the boy and his father, is going off and just going out into the woods, into the canyon, really, that uh, the human fly is going to be jumping over in his rocket sled his rocket snowmobile and human fly. He's going on his stunt. Now, if he does anything wrong, even the slightest thing wrong, well, it's going to be a problem because if he shoots off the jet too early or too late, he's dead. And so he's doing the stunt. And of course he does it perfectly, but while he does it, he's flying overhead and it causes Andy's father to turn and look And then when he turns back around, there's a bear in front of them and he veers off to the side. And it's a horrifying panel of the snowmobile turning over on its side and his uh, the father falls off and hits his head on a tree full speed while the boy goes with the snowmobile. And this actually happened to me once, not the bear part, but I remember going out on the snowmobile with my dad and the snowmobile uh my dad took a turn too hard or too sharp and it was the snow was was too um too soft and we just flipped over on its side and we were just stuck there with our legs under one leg underneath the snowmobile and the other leg on top and we're just kind of sitting there on our side and i just remember looking at the back of my dad and just trying to figure out what just happened and it was kind of funny we weren't hurt uh, in this case, you know, this was uh, has a much worse uh, outcome than with my dad and me. But then, you know, the human fly is doing his stunt. He lands perfectly and jumps off his rocket snowmobile immediately and goes and starts just skidding down on his feet. It's kind of skiing without any skis down the side of this gorge because he saw out of the corner of his eye the man and his son hit the tree. And so he runs down. He, he's, he signals to his, he's, he actually tells people to signal to his crew to meet him down there. 
and he goes down, he sees the bear, the bear is coming after the boy, the dad is not moving, the dad is not responsive, the boy doesn't know what has happened, because he can't see that his dad is laying there unconscious. So, meanwhile, uh, the human flies team, his mechanical team, they go, they get some snowmobiles, and they realize, oh, there's this seeing eye dog, and oh, we heard about... You know, the blind boy hasn't been seen, and I saw him with this dog, and so they let the dog go. And they, eh, this is one of those plot points where they kind of put two and two together and get four pretty quickly, even though they don't even know it's like X plus Y equals four, but they figure out, oh, it's two plus two without any other information being given to them. But they follow the dog as the dog runs away, and they've, you know, contacted the authorities and uh, there's help on the way, but the help is not going to get there quick enough. Fortunately, the human fly is. He gets there. The bear is about to attack the boy. Human fly jumps on the back of the bear. And these two pages, where is it? Three. I'm going to peek here. It's three. These three pages of bear fighting make this just perfect. Now, you know, human fly has his cane. He's using that, you know, to like put in the, the bear's mouth. He's trying to pull back on the bear. The bear grabs human fly and puts him into, well, a bear hug. And <laughs> the little boy realizes that there is a bear and that someone is stopping the bear from getting to him. The little boy can't do much and he doesn't know where they are exactly, but he gets his flare gun. He, get, he's, he manages to find the flare gun. Uh, from the snowmobile and turning around and he's trying to figure out what to do. But then and it actually says, and then just like in those old Lassie TV shows, Frost jumps on the bear, bites into the bear's shoulders. I mean, this is getting into, this is Jack London stuff here, man. This is white Fang, you know, this is call of the wild and the dog jumps on the bear. The bear lets go of human fly, which allows the boy to be able to turn aim toward the sound you know he's doing his best impression of daredevil i guess he's aiming towards the sound fires off the flare the flare hits the bear full in the chest and then the bear runs off then they wrap everything up in four panels maybe well i guess you could say it's four panels i'm being generous when i say they wrap, wrap everything up in four panels uh but they the help comes they put the dad on a stretcher and then um, the human fly says my leap across the gorge raised enough money for the winter festival. And some of that money could go to the operation that Andy needs to see again, which how does he even know that Andy needs an operation to see again? I mean, nothing was, was mentioned about that during the bear fight, but maybe it was mentioned while they were waiting for, you know, help to arrive. Anyway, they wrap it up just like that. And it's wrapped up just like any sitcom. I mean, it feels like a sitcom it feel, you know, with a happy ending and they're all just standing there being, you know, happy together. It feels like the ending of chips or the ending of Knight Rider or the ending of the A team where, you know, we have to make sure everyone knows that everything's going to be okay for everyone who's involved. And it works. What can I say? It works. The bear fight. It was actually kind of exciting. Uh, I didn't necessarily like the cliches we throw in there with the, you know, the seeing eye dog coming and helping, but the fact that the boy actually was a part of the solution and the fact that the boy was actually able to, you know, have that opportunity to act. And so me, 
adult Ben. I'm reading this. I'm trying to think of what child Ben would think. I think child Ben would appreciate that the child in the story was actually a part of the action and actually a part of the resolution. Adult Ben likes that from a storytelling perspective that this kid isn't just being rescued, but he is actually having a part in his own rescue and rescuing his father and helping the human fly. The sum of the parts, you know, it's a cliched story with a cliched ending, but I guess I'm just giving it extra points for fighting the bear. And, you know, I, I just have to say, if you listen to Welcome to Level 7, any of the comic book episodes of Welcome to Level 7, we talked about this on there when we talked about uh, Original <laughs> Sins with uh, Agent Carter and how they promised me a bear fight and they didn't deliver. Here, they promised me a bear fight and it was 100 times better than any shark fight that I actually got after they promised me that. And so here I am. I guess I'm just I'm just easy to satisfy. I'm easy to please. And in this case, yeah, is it still, you know, does it does it rise up to that point where it's, you know, super enjoyable? No, no, it, it doesn't. But it was good enough that I actually kind of enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed talking about it a little bit. The cliches were there, but so was the bear. And so, I mean, this month we're off to a, you know, we had a decent Star Wars twist. We have a decent human fly twist. Man from Atlantis was okay, but not great. I think it was actually even better than Man from Atlantis, honestly. Uh, we still have John Carter to come and Godzilla to come. But overall, I'm I'm liking this month so far. This has not been a wasted trip on the comic book time machine for me. And so it's time for Godzilla King of the Monsters, issue number eight, Titan Times Two. This comic book has a lot of promise and a lot of promises. Promises that they need to just decide if they're going to keep them or not. Uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters number seven ended with Red Ronin, the great big giant shogun warrior type samurai robot. Con well, not really a robot because it's controlled by a person who's sitting in the head. But he was standing in front of a field of nuclear missiles with uh, Godzilla on his way toward the nuclear missiles. This is not a good setup for anyone. Uh, you really, there's no way this can go great because that's Godzilla, you know? He's big, he's bad, he's unstoppable. So for the last couple of issues, they've been promising us the showdown between Godzilla and Red Ronin. And this cover cover of number eight uh like the cover of you know say number seven uh it promises that there's going to be that showdown it's uh on the cover it actually says rage of the red ronin here's the thing this cover is fantastic i mean if you like godzilla anything about godzilla you're going to look at this cover and think to yourself that's pretty cool godzilla is breathing fire red ronin is punching godzilla in the gut uh red ronin's other fist is up in the air and it's just sizzling with energy and Godzilla has Kirby crackle on his radioactive spine fin things. 
I mean, this cover is just a wonderful, wonderful Godzilla cover. And it promises wonderful, wonderful Godzilla action. The question is, are we going to get it? Because here's the thing. Inside Red Ronin, there's a 12-year-old boy named Rob Takaguchi. He's the Kenny of the Godzilla Marvel Comics series. And if you watch Mystery Science Theater 3000, you know what it means to be called a Kenny. He's a precocious boy who is a friend of the monster. And I mean, they're not really friends, but he seems to think Godzilla needs the protection of a 12-year-old boy. Uh, Now, up until this point, that was kind of ridiculous. Although now that the 12 year old boy is sitting in the control seat of a, what, what is that? Maybe 90 feet tall. I, I don't even know. I, I'm sure I could look it up uh, somewhere, but he's in the control seat and now he can actually, you know, help Godzilla protect Godzilla. He just has to figure out how to run the machine. And so that's not the only problem here. I mean, we've got Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe, Gabe Jones. They are up in the giant behemoth helicarrier and they're trying to figure out, you know, what do we do about this situation? And, oh, this is the thing that that uh, Tony Stark has been helping uh, us to build. And it's here now. But why isn't it doing anything? And uh, they just they don't know what to do about this. And so there's some back and forth here. I mean, the story is actually pretty simple. Rob doesn't want to fight Godzilla, but he has to stop Godzilla from hurting, well, getting to the nuclear missiles and then from hurting people. And so he's trying to figure out how to use the suit to basically hold off Godzilla. And Godzilla just wants to, you know, eat some nuclear missiles. Um, I'm getting stuck in, Chekhov's voice is stuck in my head from Star Trek IV, the nuclear vessels. But, um... Godzilla just wants to eat some good old-fashioned radiation, I guess. And, of course, if he walks through this field of missiles, they could all be sent off. And then we're looking at World War III. It's just not a good—it's just not a good day if, if that happens. And meanwhile, Dum Dum and Gabe, they are trying to figure out how do we fit into this? How can we help uh, the helicarriers having trouble? And so the, <laughs> when they find out <laughs> that uh, there's a boy in there— uh, cause that's when, um, agent Wu contacts them and tells them there's a boy, 12 year old boy sitting in the cockpit. They say, well, let's go help him. And so they're going to bring the helicarrier down and, and help. Meanwhile, Rob is trying to ap- operate the weapons and the weapon systems. And he gets a sword. There's a cool sword that, that, that red Ronin has. It's actually a shield, but then a laser sword kind of blasts out of this shield. And he's trying to, you know, bring the energy down so that it doesn't harm Godzilla. He can just kind of hit Godzilla and it'll, it'll it'll hurt, but it's not going to really harm him. And (laughs) it's just kind of a weird standoff. And I'm trying to decide if I like this, you know, I'm trying to decide because when the helicarrier comes in to help Rob to rescue Rob, Rob turns around and attacks the helicarrier. And so part of me is just thinking, well, it's the stupid kid, the stupid kid. Why do they have to have the stupid kid? And then part of me thinks, well, they couldn't do this if it wasn't this stupid kid. I mean, if Jimmy Woo was in the cockpit, who was supposed to be in the cockpit, it wouldn't be quite as understandable if he were to do the same thing that Rob is doing. If Jimmy Woo was in the cockpit trying to 
save Godzilla and he turned on the helicarrier, he's turning on his friends. But this is a 12-year-old boy. And 12-year-old boys, you know, they have lapses in judgment and they make mistakes with their judgment. And so here he is. He turns around. He attacks the helicarrier. The helicarrier's weapons go offline. And he figures out how to shoot these cables out of his boots. He picks up Godzilla by wrapping these cables under Godzilla's arms, lifts him up in the air, and starts heading to the water, to the ocean. And there's the other thing that I'm getting here is is not just kind of this ridiculous situation, but there's some good art going on here. I'm enjoying the art. Now, let's get to the, the team here. The team behind this is uh, Doug Mensch, who is the writer. Herb Trimpey is the artist. The inker is blank. There's no name there. The letterer is Denise Wool. The colors are by nobody. And Archie Goodwin is the editor. And, and this is one of those situations where I'm sure they had to go to press. Uh, they, they had to finalize the artwork to get ready to go to press before they knew who was going to be doing the inks and the colors. Maybe I don't know. Uh, it's possible that the letters were done and they just didn't have enough time between when whoever inked it and whoever colored it actually finished their job. But they did not get credited in this issue. So, yeah, we've got some forced perspective. There's this incredible page. Maybe incredible is, is overselling a little bit. But this page of three panels that are completely, they, they go from top to bottom. All three of them do. And in the one, you have Dum Dum Dugan pointing his finger. And it's super dramatic. In the other one, the middle one, this is the one I really, really like. I like the perspective. There's just a lot of energy to it, even though there's not uh, maybe not a lot of movement. But you've got Red Ronin flying and then dragging behind him. He's he's dragging Godzilla. And then right behind them coming up at another angle is that giant uh, behemoth sized uh, helicarrier. And it's that's that page. I really, really appreciate that page. Um, you have another you have a replay of that battle, basically, where Godzilla he pulls on the the cables, uh, knocks Rob out of his seat. Rob loses the helmet off his head, so he can't control the the Red Ronin. He finally gets it back on, but it's too late to help Godzilla. Godzilla and him both plummet to the earth. He's able to stop himself with his jets just in time, and he lands into in I think it's the San Diego Bay. And that page, that next page, is this just intense splash page of Godzilla rising up from the water. You know, boats are lifting up on his shoulders. And we're not talking, I, I shouldn't say boat. I mean, these are ships. These are battleships that are lifted up on, out of the water on top of his shoulders. Meanwhile, Red Ronin is standing and is looking down at Godzilla. This is just one of those powerful Godzilla moments. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you get a couple times in every movie. And if you're going to have a comic book about Godzilla, you want to get it like this. And then they battle. Rob doesn't want to. And this is where, you know, the previous section where Rob was just trying not to fight and trying just to do as little as possible because he doesn't want to hurt Godzilla. It, it kind of bugged me. Here it gets better. I mean, the stakes are higher because Godzilla is actually fighting Red Ronin. And so now Rob has to figure out how do I fight Godzilla without actually fighting him? And I liked this battle a little bit more. And it actually causes me, I think, to kind of turn uh, and and be a little be a little more on Rob's side. Now, the end, I, I'm not on Rob's side with. <laughs> he attacks the helicarrier again. And then he stands up and uses his finger on the robot to point. As if to say to Godzilla, go. 
that way, leave. And Godzilla seems to understand and leaves, walking inland again. To go where? Well, we'll find out. It says uh, next issue, a Leviathan in Los Angeles or Las Vegas. Yeah, Godzilla's going to Las Vegas. And why? Because Rob told him to leave. Just go. And so this is where we get into some problems. And uh, they don't explore it a lot other than in the over-the-top conversations between Dum-Dum and Gabe. But, uh, you know, do we fight him? Do we destroy him? He's an unstoppable monster. He must be stopped. We aren't going to stop him by being friendly. But Gabe is one of those who he says, well, we need to, you know, Let's stop. Let's let's think. Let's let's not just work on trying to destroy this thing, but let's work on trying to figure out, you know, what can we do? It's a living creature. It deserves life. And that's that's Rob. That's that's his situation, too. And what one of the things you get out of this is you kind of have it both ways where you have um, the battle between Red Ronin and Godzilla. But then you also have the conflict is not just between Red Ronin and Godzilla, or Rob and Godzilla, the conflict is actually between Rob's desire to help and his desire to not die and his desire to make sure no one else is going to get hurt or die, which at the end, he just kind of throws that desire out the window with uh, (laughs) pointing his finger as if to say, Godzilla, go that way. It'll be okay. You can eat people in Las Vegas. But the, it's good. It's it's decent. And I tell you, I didn't like it at first. I did not like Rob and this whole, well, I must protect Godzilla thing. But without that setup, without following him for the last, you know, seven issues before this and having him stand up now to do this, um, it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked at all. But as it is, the way they've done it, I'm I'm willing to go along for the ride with it. And the one other thing that I'll, I'll just note here, and it's a storytelling um, it's a storytelling tool that I guess Doug Mensch had to use in some ways just so he could get Rob's um, motivation out of this. But the whole time that Rob is doing anything, he is thinking, but he is thinking to Red Ronin. I mean, he's not quite praying. That's not really what he's doing, but he is in his thoughts saying, okay, Red Ronin, I got to figure this out. Okay, how are we going to do this now, Red Ronin? What should we do? Uh-oh, Red Ronin, I'm not in control of you as we're falling. It's it's kind of goofy. <laughs> it's kind of silly. Uh, I guess, I mean, I have talked to my car before and said, come on, we can do this. Let's do this uh, when my car doesn't want to start. So I, I guess there's precedent, you know, and maybe it's not as weird as it feels to me, but it feels kind of weird. Now, again, how else are we going to get the dialogue from him? You know, I guess it could be just that internal dialogue of I have to do this. I have to do that. And I guess that would probably work better, really, when I think about it than, okay, Red Ronin, now what are we going to do? Because Red Ronin is controlled by Rob. Red Ronin has no personality at all. I mean, any personality that's going to come out of it is Rob. He is the ghost in the machine. He is the the controlling spirit behind anything that Red Ronin does. And so it's not like 
it's not like even that he was rescued by Red Ronin and, you know, or rescued rather by someone inside the suit that, oh, well, he's going to just project a personality onto Red Ronin. No, he has only known Red Ronin as the equivalent of a, a, a tank, a tank with legs and arms and a head. And it just, it just doesn't feel, <laughs> it just feels weird. And, there because there's no computer inside this thing there's no computer that's responding to him there is nothing it's just rob thinking to himself and to red ronin but i enjoyed myself and again i mean unless john carter really really disappoints me when i do the next segment uh this month has been a great month for marvel licensed sci-fi for me anyway I mean, this is not this comic book, this Godzilla comic book. This is not going to be everyone's favorite thing. It's honestly going to feel childish. But I'll, I'll say this. First, there's something to be said for, for childishness. And in, in an interview with, uh, with, with Doug Mensch, uh, he says that he had more well, – here, quote – I've had more than a few fellow writers come up to me and say, everyone talks about Master of Kung Fu, Moon Knight, and Batman, but you know, when you were Godzilla, that was the first one I pulled out of the freebies bag. It wasn't as meaningful or, or as important as the others, but it was the most fun to read. So even back then, Doug Mensch's peers, they they were enjoying this for what it was, which is a, a kind of a childish pulp adventure. However, uh, this reading this as I'm trying to decide, do I like this Rob character or not? And as I'm kind of in my own headspace trying to figure out if I like uh, this Rob character or not, I, I found myself talking to uh, my robot that I was sitting in and I was just thinking, Red Ronan, do I like this Rob guy? Do I or not? Because on one hand, he wants to you know take the peaceful way and he's trying not to harm someone. But on the other hand, he has to fight. He has to fight this something that he doesn't want to harm to protect other people. The thing doesn't have, you know, it's an animal. It doesn't have control over its impulses and its urges. So it's just going to keep coming. And Rob has to figure out how, how do I take care of this problem? And it's actually an interesting problem. This, this idea of, you know, how do we stop someone without becoming them? Or how do we stop the monster without becoming the monster? Or how do we retain our values when we have outside forces that do not share our values. Suddenly you have a depth there that you're not really looking for or expecting in a, in a childish pulp adventure. And yes, you know, this is, this is not going to change your life. It's not going to change my life. It's a 15 minute read of a comic that has some fun looking, big, bombastic, energetic, fighting uh which you know appealing to that base nature boy this month has also kind of just shown off how much i just like you know fighting the bear so to speak but it also then allows a little bit of thought and a little bit of exploration of this ideas of really compassion and, and pacifism so i i'm enjoying myself this month and i enjoyed myself with this godzilla comic book and I don't know what's going to happen next, and I'm not really interested in the cliffhanger here. 
Godzilla just walking away over to the next adventure in the next issue. But I am going to read it, obviously, and I will talk about it. But for this issue, thumbs up. The cover of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, issue number 10, says, Is this the death of Barsoom? Well, no, it's not. But it does say, You'll be shocked when you read the final chapter of Air Pirates of Mars. And I have to say, there were moments where I was, indeed, shocked. I was very surprised. I was surprised how goofy the opening was going to be. Not not the, pre- the prologue. Uh, there's a two-page kind of prologue thing that has Tars Tarkas. He is debating within his own mind loyalty to John Carter or loyalty to his people, the Tharks. His daughter is there, and she's trying to convince him, you know, Maybe, you know, being friends with John Carter and being loyal to him is not a bad thing. Maybe the things that he values are things that we could learn from. And Tars Tarkas doesn't agree. He thinks that, you know, they don't want to lose their their way. You know, they don't have senses of humor. Uh, they only have, uh, you know, they laugh at only things that are grisly. And they, they're the greatest warriors and they should stay that way. And he tells his daughter, you know, you really... Uh, aren't being very helpful. Uh, you're confusing things by by bringing up these, you know, these other ideas uh, of that, that goes against what he's thinking about. It is interesting. Uh, there's some Martian misogyny going on here. Uh, he has his daughter is talking to him, and he says, he says, uh, my problems are not rooted in areas where females have knowledge. You concern yourselves with creating clothing and weaponry. I question loyalties and duties. And I just thought that was kind of funny that, um, yeah, creating clothing and weaponry, you know, it's, it's their own cultural, uh, misogyny, their own cultural, uh, gender roles that they have there. And this is a, this is a man who's being confronted with something that is challenging his, his culture. That's challenging the, the way things have always been. Uh, and it's a, it's an interesting conflict that he has going on there uh this is going to then this this is setting up something that happens at the end where tars tarkas decides that he is actually going to have to leave he's he's out of there uh he has to go back to his people his loyalty to john carter is not as strong as his loyalty to his people and you know being the leader of his people there's probably some validity to that even if you were a human and not a barsoomian uh, not a Thark. Uh, but that's pretty much all we get from Tars Tarkas. And you know what? That's great. That's that's that nice little subplot. It's taken care of. And, you know, we open with it. We close with it. And it's going to be one of those, you know, threads that, that follows along through the the series. I don't know how long it's going to go through the series, but it's one of those threads. And that's nice. But that's not what I'm concerned about. I am concerned about the Air Pirates of Mars. and. Good grief. <laughs> uh, as I was reading this, I, I read the first scene and like, oh, okay. You know, father, daughter. Uh, oh, by the way, one of the things that she mentions is, you know, isn't it good that you and I know each other? No one else from the Tharks knows their offspring. But Tars Tarkas actually has a relationship with his daughter because she's his daughter. 
and and he knows that and she knows who her father is and and he basically is like you know quit trying to confuse me with the facts you know i'm i'm trying to think through things logically and you're you're trying to confuse the issue by bringing up you know actual details that are relevant to my conflict and as i've already mentioned i mean her arguments really don't have much bearing on his final decision he he is going to leave now that decision comes at the end of the issue so what happens between that opening and that ending well uh it's kind of goofy and as i was reading along i read the first scene and then i read the second scene and i thought that's kind of silly what's going on here basically a white ape uh sneaks into john carter's bedroom uh where he's sleeping uh soundly peacefully with deja thoris and the white ape puts his hand on John Carter's mouth and then oceans with his finger shushes him. Shh, be quiet. You're coming with me. And John Carter says, but what about my wife? And oh, let her sleep. My master wants to see you. He demands an audience. And John Carter whispers back, who's your master to demand anything? And I don't know why they're still whispering because they're not in his room anymore. They're actually out in the street and they go out to a shuttle and they fly away. So last issue where we left off, they had this huge battle, this huge Star Wars battle, you know, where they're attacking the fortress. They're blowing up the fortress of the bad guy. And uh, John Carter says it's all done. Deja Thoris says something ominous. I can't remember exactly what it was, but she's basically saying, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't. And we find out that the uh, the great one, he is not dead and that's why we have one more chapter in the Air Pirates of Mars. This is so weird. It's like if you took Return of the Jedi and, you know, Lando and Admiral Akbar and Han Solo and all of them, they attack, they destroy the Death Star. And then after the Ewok celebration, Luke Skywalker, he goes to bed. He's alone, of course, because Princess Leia and Han Solo are together and Princess Leia is his his sister uh but he goes to bed and then a stormtrooper comes in and says shh come with me you need to go fight darth vader now it's just a goofy setup and i i can't tell if this is an intentional thing that marv wolfman was just saying you know what this is this is the great uh, this is a great idea it's so different it's so weird you know the the bad guy is summoning john carter to him instead of john carter coming to him in the battle like, that's what they're fighting to do. They're fighting to get, you know, and it's just so weird. Speaking of, I, I didn't mention who who was actually the, the team that worked on this. And Marv Wolfman is the writer and editor. Uh, Gene K or Gil Kane and the tribe, it says, are the illustrators. Denise Wool is the letterer and Troy Trumas is the colorist. Now, I don't know who, a whole lot about who the tribe is. I just, what I've been able to find is that this was a one of those groups of artists who would work together. And uh, in this case, I think that the, this, this, this group calling themselves the tribe was a group of Filipino artists. But anyway, uh, the issue is called Confrontation. It is the chapter 10 of the Air Pirates of Mars. And so we are going to get our big climax here, our big final battle, because it is the final chapter. But getting there, like I said, just seemed kind of weird. And basically, John Carter gets into a rocket ship thing with the white ape and then walks 
up into a cave and then up to the Great One's throne. Yes, the Great One and John Carter together again for the first time. They are they have been in conflict uh, on and off here for the last ten issues, but now is the big final conflict, the big final battle. And the Great One reveals a lot. He, first of all, reveals that is his name. Uh, it describes him. Uh, he is the Great One. He has no other name. He needs no other name because his identity is obvious. He is the Great One. And he is a combination of five Barsoomian races with the white apes and the Tharks and the, the red Martians. Um, and he, uh, he, so here he gives his origin and his purpose and his mission statement. And he is basically, um, he says he was on the tree of life that uh, it bloomed and died and he fell off the tree of life. And now his mission is to take Barsoom, take Mars and restore its ancient glory. Because he, while the rest of Barsoomian culture, uh, you know, they sprang to life from this tree of life and they all were just, you know, developing civilization and language and, you know, technology and all these things over the years and years and years. He was stuck on that tree <laughs> and he was aware of everything psychically. Uh, but when he finally fell off that tree and the, the impression that I get is, uh, well, he says, you know, there's branches that were above and those branches, they, they had life pods and, and then that's what the, various races were born of were these life pods, but there was a cluster of pods that failed to bloom when the other ones had. And those cluster of pods grew together and each section was from a different race. And so that is how we have this creature here who is all five races. And I'm just thinking what a ridiculous story, but what a perfect story. It, it just, works i was trying to think well how did this guy come to being you know was he cloning himself and adding parts on from different races no he was born of all five races he is literally uh one of the earliest examples of all five races in that the other races you know they were born of these pods off this tree uh, he was one of those early pods from the very beginning of barsoomians uh well from the very beginning of Barsoom, really. And so he on the tree was, you know, it was developing so slowly, but he was aware of what was going on. And he wants, you know, he then when he finally fell out of his pod and was born, uh, Barsoom was in decline. And that's what's happening here. Barsoom is in decline. And so he's been using his powers to, you know, build this this army and he's been using his psychic powers to control animals and do different things like that. And now John Carter has gotten in the way of his plans and now John Carter must die. And the great one is it, so interesting to me. Uh, he considers himself a magnificent savior of Barsoom, but to do what he has to do to save Barsoom, he has to destroy it. He has to kill almost everyone. And so then we get, uh, oh, let's see how many pages of battle. One, two, three, 
four, five, five pages of just punching and swinging their axe and swinging their sword and fighting each other in this cave. And it even says that, you know, they, they lose track of time. Who knows how long they were actually fighting each other, but they were fighting each other until their, their last and, and final breath until the last bit of energy in their body is completely spent. And then at this point, the great one gets in a lucky shot, but he's too weak to follow through and actually kill John Carter. So he gets into that ship that, that brought John Carter in and John Carter runs and jumps and holds on. He is not going to let this guy escape. He's not going to let him destroy the people of Barsoom, even though, you know, it means a new golden age, he would be able to rebuild it. And as John Carter is hanging on to the ship, uh, the great one is hallucinating. He's dying. He's dying in this the cockpit and he starts hallucinating and imagining himself running uh, through a prim primordial barsoom and finding the tree of life and finding himself home. You know, his his ship, his plan is to go to the the air, the, the atmosphere factory and, you know, crash a ship into it, kind of a kamikaze thing. Uh, but now he feels like he's home. He he's. He doesn't know that he's actually in the ship and he's he's aiming at the tree of life, but he's also aiming at the atmosphere factory. And John Carter leaps away from it, from the ship at the last moment and the ship crashes, but it does not destroy the the factory. And so when John Carter finally comes back you know, to consciousness, he finds the great one dead. And it says, for a long time, I stared at the bizarre creature, unsure whether to hate a beast who sought death for countless millions or to cry for someone who had vainly sought to save a dying world. I had no anger left within me, no anger, no pity, no tears. All I could do was stand blank eyed and quiet throughout the day. And only when Kluros and Thuria rose again in the, in the heavens, did I turn homeward to helium. And what an ending. What an ending. And in some ways, I could see people maybe saying, oh, that's not real satisfying. But to me, uh, I find it completely and utterly satisfying. I It is the perfect ending to this story. If this were a movie, they might have to change some things. Uh, no, they would definitely have to change some things. I would hope they wouldn't change this ending. This guy battles to his last breath and then hallucinates his dying wish, you know, to, to bring life back to Barsoom. And we did get the conflict that we were hoping for of John Carter coming up against the Great One. And all in all, I mean, the, the resolution here, the explanations for what was going on, what this guy was coming from, what this Great One wanted to do and why he wanted to do it. Uh it makes me forgive the goofiness of the setup, you know, Oh, the battle is done. How do I get John Carter to, Oh, I'll just have a messenger come and bring him to the bad guy. I can live with that. Uh, primarily because the, the setup there kind of starts with that setup middle ground, you know, and then from there it could easily take a nosedive. But since we're starting middle ground, but growing up, 
that that elevates it. It elevates that setup. And and you know it, it does. I guess when you think about it, come from the character of the Great One, who demands that John Carter come to him, and that the Great One basically is going to one on one take care of the one person who can really stop him. John Carter out of the way, maybe the Great One could begin his plan again. But if John Carter is still out there, there's no use to even try. And so the Great One brings him in. And their battle, their the art is is dynamic and it's it's muscular and it's everything that I've grown to appreciate about John Carter, Warlord of Mars, the comic. And I guess the final thing I have to say about this is I don't know how we can go up from here. This is actually kind of one of those things where it's it's maintained that level of quality so nicely for me that I have fear now. I think every time I open up John Carter, I'm going to be worried that we're going to take that nosedive. But for now, this first arc has made my purchase of the omnibus just I it's a steal. I mean at this point, these 10 issues for that what? I think I spent 25 bucks for this thing. I mean we're we're talking we're talking 250 an issue. I mean this is this was a good read, a fun read, an enjoyable read and it's it's just been a a, a joy to discover. And, and in some ways, I wish I discovered it earlier. But that's it for the coverage of John Carter, Warlord of Mars. It's time now to turn over uh, and take a look at what was in the comics that month, uh, but not necessarily in the stories, but the, the ads and stuff like that. Um, and we call this uh, the segment that's coming up, Ben's Bullpen Bulletin. It's going to be short today because there's not a lot. I mean, there's there's flea market pages, which are things that I, I enjoy looking at. I don't, uh, I mean, you can get the vibrating shocker that you put in your hand. You can get the Star Trek Vulcan ears. Uh, you can get the miniature ear radio and rubber gorilla hands and feet. It's cute. It's fun. The x-ray glasses are there with with the guy. This is the picture of him looking at his hand. There's the, uh, you control the seven foot life-size ghost, which is actually something that I, I find fun whenever I see that because my friend, Tim Barron, an artist I've worked with on a number of things, life-size uh, ghost is, is one of his, well, it's actually the the kind of publishing name that he uses for whenever he prints a book. Uh, super sea monkeys are there, just add water, create live instant pets. Um, there's Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew t-shirts. There's a kind of odd thing, and, and this is one that I thought maybe I, you know, just stop here for a moment. You have a a vampire, and it's a picture that is being used to uh, advertise for Slim Jim, and it doesn't say slam into a Slim Jim. It says, satisfy your meat tooth. <laughs> it shows this vampire. Uh, I guess he's getting ready to eat the the Slim Jim, but it looks like the way it just looks like he's picking his teeth with the Slim Jim, like it's a uh, a toothpick, like he's using meat to clean his teeth. And 
I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, obviously he's intending. I mean, he's the picture intends to portray him eating the meat stick, but yeah, it doesn't look like that necessarily. And there's you know, a couple ads for toys that I wanted when I was growing up. Um, and then there's, of course, the bullpen bulletin, Stan's bullpen bulletin. And in, in that, uh, he, well, there's a lot of uh, stuff about a couple Conan projects that are coming up. And then it does mention, it says, last month we gave you the rundown on Jack King Kirby's two new books, Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. This month we're going to cue you that next month they're going to be on sale. A word to the wise should be sufficient. First issues, especially those by Mr. K, disappear fast. And that's something I wanted to mention here is I am planning to read those. And I'm actually planning to read the entire series of Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. And those will be covered here in briefer form than I covered the other comics because they're not licensed, not technically, but they're spinning out of books that were licensed, uh, namely 2001. Actually, these both are kind of connected to 2001. We'll get into that next time, but I'm going to cover that during in the bullpen bulletin. So Ben's bullpen bulletin for next month when I'm covering, let's see, January, February, March, April, April 1978 cover date. Uh, that will be a part of that coverage and it'll be his own own episode. And then there's something else here that I find intriguing. I've seen this before. I don't know what it is and I actually kind of want to find it. I don't know if I would find it for a Marvel cosmic comic thing or not, but uh, it says finally in our black and white magazine line, a new edition of Marvel preview surges forth in January and features the UFO connection, a novel length blockbuster of flying saucers, pyramid power, Reincarnation and a Secret War with Beings from Beyond, written by David Kraft, drawn by Herb, Herb Trimpey, and rendered by Klaus Janssen. Editor Roger Sliffer assures us it's all imaginary, but the way it ties in with some known facts and theories leaves us wondering and experience a shiver or two, definitely not brought on by the winter wind. And I have to say, I find that you know, some of that chariots of the gods type of thing really intriguing. Not today. <laughs> but I find what, what I find intriguing, honestly, is the chariot of the gods stuff that was kind of coming out in this time here in the seventies. And even in, I guess, I think the sixties is when the book was written. Uh, I find it interesting and intriguing to basically look back at this UFO phenomenon that was kind of really bursting out of this spiritual awakening in the seventies but that you know more of the new age spiritual awakening that was was coming and so i'm i'm curious about that one and i don't know if i'm going to be able to find it i've seen the cover in different places but i like i said i don't know if i'm going to be able to find it i don't know when i would read it even if i do find it but it's it's there and maybe we'll uh, just do a regular comic book time machine episode about it or something i i don't know uh there is a uh hostess cupcakes ad with Spider-Man where some guy stealing an emerald and he throws oh, actually a, a group of guys that are all wearing orange jumpsuits. They look like they're uh, actually, no, they're, they're images that he's projecting and he doesn't know how he's going to find the real one. So he throws the cupcakes out and the real one, of course, stops to, to grab them and he gets, he gets nabbed, he gets captured. And finally, there's this uh, ad for a galaxy of Star Wars treasures. And I find it funny because it basically is 
uh, Luke, Leia, and Han, and they're wearing Star Wars. Uh, well, Luke's wearing a Star Wars shirt. Han is wearing a Star Wars cap. And uh, C-3PO has a Star Wars tote bag. And R2-D2 has a Star Wars backpack. And there's a Stormtrooper who's unrolled the Star Wars poster. And Obi-Wan Kenobi is standing behind him, tapping on the Stormtrooper's shoulder. And he's got his lightsaber, and it's ignited. And he's holding it. You know, if he was holding a cane, I would think he's just you know holding it up in the air on his shoulder resting it on his shoulder it's a lightsaber you don't rest that on your shoulder because it would you know best case it's just going to burn your shoulder worst case your arm's coming off but (laughs) the way he's looking it's like he's tapping the stormtrooper's shoulder as if to say hey turn around give me the poster or i'm gonna cut your head off like boba fett's dad you know anyway I just the the whole thing just strikes me as kind of funny where you have the, all those characters just with their their Star Wars merchandise. So that's it for March of 1978, the cover date anyway. These books were all released in December of 1977, but we are moving to January of 1978 with the release of the comics that we, we will be covering next in April, April. 1978 cover date and i'm gonna go ahead and i've done this sometimes i'm gonna go ahead and do it right now i just pulled the bag up and we will be looking at let's see star wars issue number 10 john carter warlord of mars issue number 11 godzilla number nine man from atlantis number three um human fly number eight and then like i said machine man and devil dinosaur number one will be a part of the bullpen bulletin as long as well as i should say uh, Marvel premiere featuring Seeker 3000, which is Marvel kind of prepping a sci-fi concept. I have never read this before. I found it and I thought, you know what? I am going to put this one in, in coverage. Uh, you know, I'm, I might skip that UFO thing, but I'm going to go ahead and do this one. This is also the month coming up that uh, has the Howard the Duck Star Wars parody cover. And I won't do anything with that other than mention it right now. So, yeah, that's the April 1978 cover date that we'll be covering in our next round of Marvel's Cosmic Comics. I thank you once again for listening and hope you enjoyed talking about this. And if you do, please contact us. ComicBookTimeMachine.com. That's our website. You can find contact information there. You can also go to Facebook.com slash ComicBookTimeMachine. And we'd love to hear from you and I would love to hear from you, especially if you have any knowledge or any memories of these comics that we're talking about. So that's it for now. Once again, thanks for listening and Godspeed. <laughs>